Hello and welcome to The Lawyer Podcast. I'm Catherine Griffiths, editor of The Lawyer. And I'm Christian Smith, litigation editor of The Lawyer. In just a few days' time, more than a thousand glamorously dressed people will descend on the Grosvenor House Hotel on Park Lane for, well, what is the legal awards ceremony of the year, the one everyone wants to be seen at, the one everyone wants to win a prize at. That's right. The Lawyer Awards are upon us. The dresses are bought. The trophies have been engraved. The red carpet is being rolled out. The host, Dara O'Brien, is polishing his one-liners. And hopefully it will not be 36 degrees in London this year. So on this episode of The Lawyer Podcast, we do our best impression of an awards show and preview a few of the categories that we're watching closely. But don't worry, it's not all awards, awards, awards on this episode. Not at all. Now, many of you know and love the Lawyer's Daily Horizon newsletter. Well, last week, the Lawyer hosted the first edition of Horizon Live, which is a series of discussions between leading lawyers on what is moving the market and what is going to move the market. And later in the podcast, we'll bring you an excerpt from three of the most senior US firm partners in the country from that first edition of Horizon Live. But first, career progression is an issue close to the hearts of most lawyers. One of our colleagues actually posted on LinkedIn earlier this week asking partners to message her about what qualities they look for in associates that would make them a good partner. And within hours, she was absolutely inundated, largely actually from associates wanting to know what she was being told. Traditionally, the career path at law firms has been clear and steady and structured, but that's been changing over the last decade or so. More and more lawyers are actually deciding that partnership isn't for them. But as habits change, divides are appearing, particularly between US and UK firms and male and female lawyers. To discuss the phenomenon, earlier Kat caught up with our Deputy Editor City, Rachel Maloney. Rachel, you have been investigating some demographic data, have you not, at in corporate departments at major firms? There's lots of interesting stuff that, uh, and I think we've only just scratched the surface, but what I was specifically looking at was, um, we often look at who's my partner, but I was interested to see who, who in the teams at quite a senior level and weren't partners. And uh, what I found was differences between actually differences between magic circle firms themselves and definitely differences between the u.s headquartered firms that are here some of the big ones like latham and kirkland who their teams are actually not that much smaller than the magic circle in london now but they have so few senior lawyers who are not partners Mm. and i thought that was quite an interesting uh thing to find yeah and so this is very much on corporate um teams isn't it so you're saying that after a certain level of pqe they that sort of essentially disappears at the at the lathams and the kirklands and the u.s firms yes yes it was just a handful of um people that we found who were kind of on a uh, 14 years pqe and above which is normally the kind of time when people would be making partner although there mm. were a few at latham where i thought you know potentially they might be still on the partner track i guess it just some people um have different amount lengths of time potentially um but you could definitely find lawyers at the magic circle who had over 20 years pqe that 
you wouldn't expect to find a place like Kirkland due to their model of, you know, wanting partners essentially and, and partners to be billing the, the money. And I, I thought that was um, interesting that, you know, the magic circle model, that's still, they're still fine with that. You know, they, I guess those lawyers are very senior. They work on matters handling um advisory work maybe um supporting on deals uh, but not with that partner title mm. and so is it the sense that that you know to sort of to boil it down that the uk firms are more inclusive um the us firms you know the us firms are clearly an up and out model if you don't make partner you don't want to hang around because those people are expensive you know they you know they're they're expensive but they're not sort of generating the same necessarily the same bills they're not necessarily getting in front of the clients and doing bd in quite the same way and yet they still have a very much a place within the uk firms don't they which uk firms um particularly stood out for you on that yeah, I mean, with the inclusivity point, I would probably point out that this is probably another data point to do. But the US firms in London, in general, actually, do have quite a good gender split between female partners and male partners. Although I think it is quite, it, it, there are differences in corporate. There are still more male partners than female corporate partners, I think, in most firms US or, or UK the US firms have a model they want to keep it up people are expensive to keep on especially if they're senior you know if mm. you look at the salaries that junior lawyers are paid mm. so that's just the model they go with they have to stay profitable but it's very very interesting because it's so rigid it is there's there's no sort of gesture towards well actually there's an institutional knowledge contained with this particularly client knowledge uh, with this this person obviously we you know we're not sort of sort of singling out names in these particular departments but but to go on to my sort of my, my earlier question which firms which firms stand out for having a sort of a larger number of very senior non partner corporate lawyers. It was, yeah, A&O and Clifford Chance, um, mm. who are actually out of the four Magic Circle firms. I guess they're the two which, uh, to, much to their annoyance, they they often don't get put on the same pedestal that Freshfields and Linklaters do. Mm. Um, so maybe that's interesting in itself, that Freshfields and Linklaters seem to be taking on more of a model of the US firms in their con more rigid keeping profitable and keeping making sure partners are working on those corporate deals than A&O and Clifford Chance which uh, seem to have kept many more people on well maybe being maybe being the sort of I mean like you say A&O and Clifford Chance you know consider themselves to be top tier and they are top tier corporate practices but there is that lingering perception isn't there and maybe maybe that perception allows them to have a little bit more wiggle room you know they can be a little bit more flexible and innovative in terms of actually who who they're keeping but it just seems so strange in a, in a world where you're talking about working practices where they're talking about flexible working all of this kind of stuff that is not you know that's not making itself seen yet within you know this pyramid partner model is still very very ensconced at uh, at the Lathams and the Kirklands and and Linklaters and so on yeah that's definitely what I thought I mean there's also no reason why some of these people obviously maybe they do want to become partner it's just that you know and maybe they will become partner mm, it's just yeah. when definitely when you go through the magic circle promotions you don't no, you, there is a sort of level that you see making partner. It's very mm. rare at the magic circle that you'll see people over PQE of about, mm. I don't know, 16 years making partner in the magic circle firms. There seems to be that sort of idea that that's, that's when it would happen before and it just 
Uh, and it therefore feels that sort of, you know, anyone who wants to take a career break for whatever reason, and obviously we are talking mostly about women um, mm. who might want to take a career break for maternity reasons, um, you know, that there are no models to follow. You know that, that, that you know that, that Freshfields and Linklaters and Latham and Kirtland are not offering them up as potential. So I think there's a yeah. I think there are real questions to be asked about actual talent talent management there. Um, yeah, I think there are progress. I think there's some progress coming on though in terms of the uh, I know I, I understand I know that there are quite a few organisations that are keen to kind of put. Uh, appeal to to women feeling like that and wanting to get them Mm -hmm. back in in places of work after a career break which I think is is uh I think that's really positive yeah no absolutely Rachel thank you very much Well, moving on, following this year's US 50 reports, our Director of Insight, Matt Byrne, hosted the first ever edition of Horizon Live last week. Think of it like the Horizon newsletter live. Now, Matt was joined to discuss the dynamics of the US 50 by three managing partners of leading US firms in London, Jason Glover of Simpson Thatcher, Jenner and Block's Christine Bramskamp, and Dominic Griffiths from Mayor Brown. And in what was an exciting and sometimes fiery discussion, we've put together a wee excerpt for you to enjoy and hopefully to get you excited about future editions. Aino Sherman, in 10 years, will we be looking at this as Clifford Chance, Rogers and Wells or something a bit more transformative? Jason, let's go to you first. Clifford Chance, Rogers and Wells, been there before, was there at the time. I sort of I understand why they've done it. I think it makes a lot of sense for both firms, but I don't think it's groundbreaking. I don't think it's, it, with all due respect to each of those firms, I don't think it's a merger coming from a position of strength. Mm-hmm. I, I understand the reasons why it's been done. I think there will be some significant efficiencies created. Um, you know, both, both in terms of cost savings for Shermans in London and ANO in the US, but I don't see it as groundbreaking. I don't see it as something that's going to change the market. Okay, brilliant. Um, Chris, I think the first thought I had when when I read it in the in the in, in the legal news or the news generally was that thank goodness I don't have to be present during their first comp season. I think that's where the rubber hits the the, the road. I think the vote is still going to be interesting. I'm sure there's a huge amount of lobbying going on in, in either firm. We've seen some departures already to really good firms again. Other people may benefit from this. I think overall in the long term, I'm with Jason. Okay. Okay. Thank you. And Dom, what's your take? Um, you know what? For once, Matt, I just don't know. I mean, I just will... <laughs> We'll, we'll see. Okay. We see. I mean, no, no, quite, quite seriously. I mean, I think that is a bold move. It's quite an impressive move. I think it would be sort of sound glib for me to sort of to take a dig at it. But, but time will tell because we'll find out which partners stick around, which practices stick around. But I tell you one interesting thing. I mean, I think it does slightly spell the death knell of the big MC word. I mean, I mm. think you know fundamentally people are realizing you have to have that big sort of strong North American presence to, to survive. What also, it's quite interesting, the sort of name combination. If I were doing it, I'd probably keep Sherman and Alan Overy in New York and the other way around over here, because we do know traditionally that the big English names trying to penetrate New York have, have not have not worked. You know, the, 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 the highly sophisticated buyer of top-end, high-margin legal services in New York, uh, just uh, they, they don't 
they don't succumb to the to the glamour of the big English style platform. Jason, yeah, Simpsons London office is is it's not standalone, of course, but it, it's it's um, you know, self generates most of its work as I understand it. Um, yeah. The the big question that people always think about when Simpson, you're so aligned to and associated with PE, you yeah. and you've had that build out in the last four to five years. Um, how how concerned are you about the you know the market conditions at the moment and what it means for your practice in London? Mm. Well, I don't mean sound trite, but I'm not concerned at all. Um, and the reason for that, it, two things. One, um, just a commentary about the firm and and what history has taught us. History te history certainly taught me. Uh, you know, my age is such that I've probably worked through four recessions and. History teaches me that recessions at this time when you can pick up market volume, that, you know, in busy times, you're very busy. It's very hard to target new clients, get any particular traction. In downturns, you can actually spend a bit of time doing that. So so a market correction actually presents opportunities. It, it mm -hmm. really does create an opportunity for market share. And I think for a firm like Simpson Thatcher um, in private equity, that's good for us. But regardless of that, um, just put things in perspective first of all our revenue we're five months into the year our revenue is up seven percent so we're not down we're not struggling at all quite the reverse um, the second thing i'd say is that private equity is a market that always has downturns and you know the, the current downturn is well documented you've got a denominator effect in other words the public markets are down and people have to look at managing their asset allocation so a less attractive to private equity at the moment We've got the volatility of pricing in part caused by the debt markets and lack of availability of debt. But that will come back. I don't think anyone has any doubts that it will come back. So this is a temporary blip. What one's really got to do is to take a longer term view about private equity. What, what is the future of private equity? And everything I hear suggests that private equity will have a further period of growth over the next 10 years, that there is a huge demand for private equity products starting to come from the mass affluence that were being um, approached. Um, institutions continue to uh, move towards private equity as they are seeking alpha returns. And the markets themselves have created liquidity for people to be able to get out of private equity if they want to. So private equity, I'm absolutely certain over the, over the next few years will continue to boom. So. You know, if the next 12 to 18 months are quiet, I think it's a time for capturing market share. And also, we, we as a firm are very much committed to resourcing for growth in the future. So if we have a quiet period, then fine. You, know, you can't you can't operate in sixth gear all the time. Sometimes you have to drop down to second or third and take it a bit easy. Can I can I add? Oh, yeah, I'd agree, I'd agree with all of that, Jason. I, I, I The bit that I particularly agree with is private equity will hold out. It's going to be it, it, it's a major area which is not going to disappear it's not going to be and we're just we're just seeing a market downturn so i agree with that but here's a big dose of reality and uh, you know and it's sort of we're skirting around a little bit you know there are there's a significant downturn in activity at the top end of the of the of that type of work there's a significant downturn in activity at the top end of leverage finance in the capital markets um in high yield in clos right these are the classic areas that US law firms, particularly those firms I mentioned before, which were a little bit more niche in the past, have you know double, triple, quadruple down on in terms of 
you know, big lateral hires. We've seen a significant amount of increase in, in, in associate salaries. We've seen sort of horrors of sort of fear of losing lawyers from, from various different law firms. That market has changed enormously. And, and, you know, we are witnessing layoffs. We're witnessing situations where there are people getting very nervous in that market. You know, it's interesting for people like us because we actually are growing our, our private equity area. You know, quite frankly, we didn't have a major reputation in that area. We built a finance group around structured finance and asset-based lending and trade finance, not top-end leverage finance. But we are absolutely dedicated to continuing to grow in those core areas. We're not put off our hiring strategy. We're not put off our investment strategy just because there's a bit of a dip in private equity work. And my sense is, Jason, that firms like yours that have already been doing a lot of that high-end work are not holding back in terms of keeping their, their, their top sort of generating partners happy, you know, making sure that people are invested in and that, and that, that we're ready for, for the new market. But I think that firms that have a more hedged and a better position right now. And Christine will, will probably say this as well, you know, over 40% of our lawyers are litigators. Thanks the Lord. Well, we are now only a few days away from all the glitz and glamour of the Lawyer Awards at the Grosvenor House Hotel in central London. With 27 categories to look forward to, it is truly a night that honours the very best of the legal industry. So as the anticipation builds, we thought we would preview a few categories that have caught our eye. I think it's important to note before we start that any firms or or entrants mentioned here are not an indication of who may have won. Absolutely not. In fact, there are so many categories and so many extraordinary entries that I'm actually finding it really difficult to recall uh, some of the winners. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but they are all absolutely fabulous. Um, so with some categories to discuss. So uh, let's th- look at, uh, and I think actually what I'd really like to talk about is not so much the specifics of those entries, but actually what the totality of those entries tells us about the market. So with Law Firm of the Year, um, it's quite a, a, a longish sort of shortlist. We've got uh, we've got six global, uh, that's Ashurst, A&O, Latham, Freshfields and Paul Hastings, of which two you will notice are US heritage. And I think that's a very important indicator of how markets are converging, that sort of US UK market that's that's really converging within um, a London context. Um, we've got one national uh, with an international spread, that's Adelshaw Goddard. And if you will remember last year, our our winner, uh, the trajectories are very interesting within national firms with international spreads. They just get bigger. Eversheds, which was actually our last year's winner, started off a national firm, got bigger, got bigger. Uh, the platform really, really mushroomed. So, but, it, but it's not just all national firms and international firms, is it? Absolutely not. So there are three firms in the sh- uh, on the shortlist that are markedly smaller and pretty localized and they are Lewis Silkin, Burkitts and Brabners and that uh, is a real indication of of actually the really great work and the absolutely interesting strategic thinking that is happening amongst the smaller firms within the UK the top 100 within the UK. I mean it is such a varied list isn't it? It re- I mean, it, you. I mean, how can you compare? You know, can you compare Brabners with Freshfields? Well, the important thing is that we're not actually comparing Brabners with Freshfields, for example, or Latham with Lewis Silkin. The whole point is that those firms are on that list because of what they've done on their 
own terms and in their own spheres. So the recognition actually is really about being on the shortlist in the first place. Um, and I think actually this this applies to some other categories as well, because the lawyer awards is a very sophisticated judging process. We have we have a number of judges, you know, sort of dozens and dozens of judges that we call in. They've been in the hot 100. They are general counsel. They are managing partners. They are practice area heads. They're doing great work. They really know their stuff. Um, so what the lawyer awards is not is a kind of knee jerk directory style rankings of the same old, same old, you know, top in this particular kind of category. It's about specific performance over one year. So if you look at the private equity um, shortlist, you've got, of course, you would expect to see Latham on it. They're doing, you know, massive, big value, complex deals. If you also look at who else made that list this year, there, you know, there's some interesting names on it. CMS, Eversheds, Hill Dickinson, McDermott, Proskauer, the, and they're all doing very interesting transactions across a, a wide variety of markets. And I think when you go from private practice to, to in-house, for example, it becomes quite a different story as well. You know, it, it, very much different kind of conditions for judging. What what are you expecting? What are you seeing from in-house? Oh, gosh. I mean, can we do a whole podcast on this? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. um, <clears throat> there are too many amazing entries to single out. We've actually already got four very established categories. They are commerce and industry, banking, financial services, and tech, media, and sport, plus, of course, general counsel of the year. Um uh, and it's hugely oversubscribed. And I can say that, you know, over the last decade or so, the the quality of the entries in those categories is is unrecognizable now. It's amazing. And and actually on top of that, there's a legal operations category. And this is of course where you see the biggest shift of expertise within house teams that, that talks about a, a, a wider development within the sector because ops and delivery is fundamental to those teams. And more to the point, it does not require lawyers because most of the GCs we speak to, and particularly this happened, in, in, do you remember in our last podcast um, from the GC Strategy Summit, and around half the legal team um, in, in, these, in these companies are not legally qualified. Uh, but they're senior people. They have other specialisms and they have really serious expertise. So so the legal teams are properly rounded. They don't just do law. Uh, and that's why legal ops is such an important part of, of the kind of the, the, you know, the awards landscape now. Now, I'm going to shut up because I know that you are itching to talk about litigation generally, Christian, because obviously that's what your uh, that's what your specialism is as well. So what are your thoughts on the various litigation related categories? I am itching, I have to say. Um, I mean, you know, traditionally we have we have several categories in the litigation sphere, you know, barrister of the year, chambers of the year, litigation team of the year, that sort of thing. We now also have a new special category of litigation boutique of the year that is, you know, a distinct class of, of law firms. Um, and, and so in that respect, we thought they deserved their own category because they may not be big firms doing, you know, a, a cross section of work on advisory and transactional and litigation, but they are really nailing it in their own niche area of litigation, which is, you know, I, we thought really deserves um, uh, uh, recognition. There is, of course, the the litigation team of the year, which is a really exciting one, and I think what I noticed in particular this year uh, was was just how varied. The cases involved are uh, uh, for the for the uh, the teams that made the shortlist. So, for example, I mean the, the way the way it's done is is that teams enter using you know a, a, off the back of a big piece of litigation that they've completed in the last twelve months or so, um, 
and and what you can see from the, some of the finalists is just how varied these are. And that just goes to speak for for how litigation works. You know, litigation can cover any aspect of life, really. Unlike, say, for example, Lev Finn or some other areas that tend to deal with deals and M&A and, and, and that sort of thing. That some of the cases that we've got here, are, are, you know, you've got things like the big ENRC Deckett case that Hogan Lovells is shortlisted for that, you know, was this enormous case for the legal industry about, about lawyers and about a, a massive Kazakhstani mining company. Um, you've also got Adelshaw Goddard, which has a case over an IT contract worth many millions um, that is, is huge for the IT industry. You've got the very prominent Tate Modern case over, over the balcony that Forster's won, um, over the balcony uh, that could be seen into from the Tate that, that you know, made, made nationals across the country. And then you've got, you've got BCLP on the trucks case, um, which was sort of the first uh, victory in, in that massive trucks cartel case um, that has been followed closely by the legal press and, and the legal industry and, and the press in general, you know, for, for many years now. So really covering all aspects of, of the law here. And it's obviously important to stress that, uh, you know, there's dark horses. They're the peoples that you didn't mention because we haven't have time to to go into that no, entire category. But in fact, something that we should actually return to in a subsequent podcast, because I think, in fact, the tactics and the nous on display and the importance of so all of the cases shortlisted is is absolutely undeniable. And it's it's a proper privilege to have such a ringside seat, I would say, to, for us to really be following it and honouring some of the work that, that the lawyers are doing on it. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. It's, I mean, the entries. I'm, I mean, when when you sit down and read them, are immense, mm. and you realise how much time and effort, well, how much time and effort has actually gone into writing the entries in the first place, let alone the cases themselves. Mm. So it's 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 quite impressive. Well, I cannot wait till Tuesday night. It's going to be a fantastic evening. That is all we have time for on this episode of the Lawyer Podcast. Now, the Lawyer Podcast will be taking a break over the summer in July and August. We are prepping lots of exciting things for when we come back, but we are still back for one more episode at the end of the month. So make sure you tune in. Thanks for listening. You can contact us as always at podcast at thelawyer.com. And of course, you can find more about anything we've been discussing at thelawyer.com. And we'll be back again in a fortnight. Until then, goodbye. Bye. Bye.